0: We're continuing this afternoon to examine Jesus' teachings on prayer. It's my goal, hopefully it's yours as well, that over these weeks as we examine the Lord's prayer and then Jesus commands where he, where he motivates us to pray, that each of us would, would grow in how we commune with God in prayer. That if prayer is something that is deficient in your life that you would grow to be proficient in prayer that if already you have a proficiency in prayer, that you would move to an excellency in prayer if if you 're struggling with i don 't know what to pray for then i is my hope that this would be helpful if you're if you 're struggling with a motivation to pray then then this will be helpful. What we saw last week is The disciples were so moved when they saw Jesus in prayer. And after he was finished praying, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Because when they saw Jesus praying, they saw him in communion with God, with fellowship with God. And how we yearn and yearn for for fellowship and communion with God. When Jesus was in prayer, it was a demonstration of his submission to the Father's will. And our prayers are an indication of our submission, our dependence Upon God. The proud don't pray. But those who are in submission to the Father's will delight to do His will and so come to Him in prayer. And we also see in Jesus' life the amazing power of answered prayer. That from that communion with the Father, from that submission to the Father, then comes the requests of the Father, which are then powerfully answered, and we see God's will here on earth moving and acting. Through answered prayer. And isn't this the way it ought to be? Is God going to work and reward a prayerless people? Is God going to move and to show forth his salvation and his power and his wisdom and and give the gift of his spirit to a a hard-hearted, proud, and prayerless people? Of course not. Because who received the glory for that? Not God. And so our goal here is to learn how to come before the Lord and to see the Lord move and work as we fellowship with him in prayer. Now what we're going to be doing here today is begin working our way through what is called the Lord's Prayer. This prayer that I'm certain many have heard Many non-Christians have heard it before. And Jesus is going to teach the disciples and teach us what we ought to be praying for. What our prayers ought to consist. What are the priorities of our prayers? How ought we to address God our Father and bring order and argument to our prayers? And I want to remind you as we look at this that it's important as we study a topic like prayer that we don't hear and then leave and never put into practice what we hear. The scriptures so often call us to be doers and not hearers only. I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't want to be a hearer only. I'm, you, you look at Christians in the past and you're like, boy, they, they knew almost nothing. And yet... Wow, they were completely sold out for God. I'd I'd rather that than a, a walking encyclopedia with no obedience to God. But why not be those who hear and those who know and those who act and those who do? Those who know good theology and those who live it out in their practice. Jesus warns about those who hear but don't do. They're the foolish person who builds their house on the sand, and then in comes the flood and destroys that house. And it's a great destruction. But he says, Those who hear and do are like those who build their house on a rock, and it weathers the storms of life. And Jesus would so often say, Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. You might say, Well, I, I have ears to hear. What he means is, Are you really hearing? Are you really hearing such that you're doing what I say? And so as we consider prayer, this is not meant to be an exercise that is merely intellectual. Jesus here gives us a pattern of prayer that we would put into practice. That we would pray this way. That we would say this. That we would labor to commune with God. To submit ourselves to his will. And to ask God for things and to expect him to move through those prayers. And so let's not be hearers only. So with that, look with me in Luke 11, verse number two. Here's Jesus' instructions to his disciples when they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. Jesus says to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. He continues and says, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we Also, as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Now we're going to divide this prayer into two different parts. Give us sufficient time to to consider all the details of this. You notice in verse number two, when Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Here's the greatest priority. It's God word, God oriented And then in verse three, and then give us our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses and lead us not into temptation. But first and foremost, the chiefest priority is concerning the father and the hallowing of his name and his kingdom coming. And so this is instructive for us to be God-centered in our prayers. And so we're going to focus on verse two today and consider each of those phrases, father, then hallowed be your name and your kingdom come. I want to explain each what Jesus means by this. When you pray, say this, say Father, say hallowed be your name, say your kingdom come, explain each of them, and then for each of them, consider what they mean for our prayers today. How does the truth about Father, about hallowed be your name, or about your kingdom come, understood rightly, how does that then drive us to pray? What ought we to pray for when Jesus says, when you pray, say this? Okay, remember this is not a formula, this is not a recipe. You don't just recite these words, meaningless, vain repetition. But Jesus here is giving us a template, a pattern, the things that we ought to be praying for and be mindful as we commune with our Lord in prayer. So first, let's consider Father. He says, when you pray, say Father. Now immediately this is unusual. When the disciples said, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples, the Pharisees also had their prayers. So these different Jewish groups would each have their own prayers, but those prayers did not begin with father. It wasn't completely unheard of in Judaism to refer to God as father, but it was extremely unusual. Unusual. And it was so unusual that when Jesus persisted to use father to refer to God and continue to commune with him as father, in John chapter 5, the Pharisees got out stones to stone him. And the reason why they were going to stone him, because he said, you, in calling God your father, are making yourself equal with God. And if you remember, Jesus said, my father is working and I'm working too. That's why I can heal on the Sabbath day. And so they they just thought Jesus' language was so presumptuous. Who are you to refer to God as Father? And the reason why this is so unusual, and, and we have a hard time understanding it today, is because in the first century, their view of God was in many respects much bigger than our view of God. We have to admit that in our culture today, we have a very domesticated God. A very tame God. A God who's like your buddy and can come alongside you. But but a God who's not too demanding upon you. A God who is not authoritative. A God who is not king over everything. But he's my helper. My friend. And we also have a God today that is not only domesticated, but a God that is feminized. All the the virtues and the qualities that are so beautiful to women are attributed to God. And in fact, even to say that God is a, a... a male, in terms of he and and father, even that today is not even accepted by a lot of so-called Christians. We have to emphasize the, the feminine qualities of God. That which is soft and, and gentle. And so we conceive of God in these ways, these domesticated ways, And so we miss out on why this is so unusual for Jesus to instruct his disciples to say, when you pray, say Father. And the reason why we miss it is because Jesus is saying that you call the creator of heaven and earth your Father. See, the Jews in that day, they understood that God is infinite and we are finite. Finite. That God is the creator and we are the creature and there's an infinite gap between the creator and the creature. He's not like some kind of Greek or Roman God where he's basically the superhuman, but all the same failings and characteristics as us. No, he is other. He is separate. He is completely perfect. He is completely independent, needing of nothing. And we are completely dependent and weak and he is almighty and strong. He is all wise. He is all knowledgeable. He is all powerful. And we are woefully deficient in every one of those categories. There's there's an infinite difference between who God is and who we are. And so Jesus here saying, when you call God, when you address him, when you pray to him, call him father. Wow, that's shocking. It's similar to what David says in Psalm 8. When he says, "O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And it's even greater when Jesus says here, call God your father. Not only does God care for you, not only is he mindful of you, but he regards you as a child, as a son, as a daughter. And when you pray, call him father. It's incredible. Not only is David looking at the sun, moon, and the stars, but for those billions upon billions of stars, God not only made them all and set them in their place, but He has named each and every one. There's no way we can think of billions upon billions of names. God has them all named, and He governs them, He governs their courses. All the animals, read the book of Job. Not only does God have infinite knowledge into all the different animals that are in the sky or on land or in the sea, but he feeds each and every one. He has intricately designed each and every one and he cares for them and he provides for them. Oh, God's, God's knowledge and his power are so far greater than anything we could even fathom. And yet Jesus still says, when you pray, call him father. The scriptures say that he dwells in unapproachable light, he is so holy, you cannot approach him, no one can see God and live, and Jesus says call him Father first Timothy six fifteen and sixteen it says there that God is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And Jesus says, you address that God as father. It's mind blowing. Not only is God all powerful, all knowledgeable, not only do we receive from him morality, ethics, knowledge, the ability to do science, all of that is a reflection of God's character. But we see in God, he is the perfect and righteous judge. He is morally pure. And he will judge. And the scriptures say, he will by no means clear the guilty. He is not an unjust judge. He is not a perverted or a corrupt judge. He will by no means clear the guilty. And Jesus says, you disciples, you sinful disciples, you call him your father. And again, how can that be? How can we as mere earthlings, finite, weak, sinful creatures, presume to address the almighty God, the eternal creator of heaven and earth, and say, Father? Well, the only way we can is because the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has made us sons that we have access to the father as his children because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John's disciples couldn't say this. The Pharisees couldn't say this, but Jesus disciples can say this. They can say father because their master, the Lord Jesus Christ is the son and he adopts us and he brings us into this heavenly family and says, now you can call the creator, your father. First Peter 3.18 says this, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. In Romans 8, it says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received, listen, the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The son has made us sons. Jesus Christ has sent the spirit of adoption into this world by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Is that incredible? That we can be brought into the family of God and heirs of God, heirs of this eternal kingdom, heirs together with the Lord Jesus Christ, be called a brother and a sister of Christ, a son of God, a child of God. You see, we don't understand just the weight of this because not only we have low views of God and elevated views of man, but we assume that every single person on this earth is a child of God. That's not what the Bible says. We become a child of God when we are bought by the blood of Christ and given the spirit of adoption and then brought into the family of God. The only way anyone can become a child of God is by being born again. The first time you're born, you're not a child of God. You're born in the image and likeness of God, but you are not properly in his family. But when you are born again, when you receive his spirit, when you are united to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, you now have a new father and he's in heaven and he's the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And what is his is yours. We have an inheritance in him and all because of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you are not here today as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not been born again, If you have not come before Christ to confess your sins and to plead for his forgiveness and to take up your cross and to follow him, to pay your your loyalty and your love and and in faith and commitment, live for Christ, then you're not a child of God. And you can't call God your father. In fact, God will be a, a judge to you, a terrifying judge. A judge that will show no mercy, he'll show perfect justice. But for those who bow their knee before the son, the Lord Jesus Christ, they're adopted into the family of God. They receive the new birth, the spirit of adoption. And they can rightly call God their father. And so Jesus says, when you pray, say father. Now, what does this mean for our prayers? Two things I want to share with you when it comes to when you pray, say, Father, how do we pray in light of this reality? Number one, it's important we understand we enter the kingdom of God through Christ and we enter the throne room of God in prayer. We enter the kingdom of God through Christ, we enter the throne room of God in prayer. Now, just like the idea of God is our father is in many respects lost on us because we have such a low view of God, in many respects, the privilege of prayer is lost on us because we have low views of God and high views of ourselves. Isn't that why we don't pray as we ought? We think of ourselves greater than we are and we think of God as a small thing. In prayer, we have access to the throne room of God. And again, again, this is This is mind-blowing. And we don't have a king today, so it's hard for us to relate to what it means to enter the throne room and speak to the king. You know, try sending an email to Justin Trudeau. He's not a king. Well, King Charles. Okay, send an email to King Charles. And and will he respond to you? No, no. You have no access to the king. And King Charles is in many respects um, a figurehead not a not a genuine sovereign like we see in in times past imagine one of those kings of old who wielded incredible power that no one would defy them and and you and you imagine that Two big doors opening up into the king's throne room and you're this long granite hall with all these pillars and marble and these precious stones, a, a huge throne at the end of the hall and soldiers lined the side in perfect array. Everything is in place, beautiful mosaics and flags and banners. Just a majestic place to be in. And as soon as the king comes in to sit on his throne, adorned with his crown, having his scepter, which symbolizes his authority and his power and his might, everybody falls down to worship, to give respect to this king. Now, if you were a citizen of this empire, this dominion under this king, you don't waltz into the palace and waltz into the throne and say, I have a, something to say to the king. Just don't do that. Only those who would be his immediate counselors would have that kind of access. And even then, if the king didn't want to hear from them, they're gone. But what if a son of the king comes in? Certainly that king would listen to his son. And so not only do we have an earthly throne room, majestic as it is, but a heavenly throne room, Where the king of kings and the Lord of lords sits. And we not only have access into the kingdom because of Christ. But we have access to the throne of grace because of Christ. That we might receive mercy and grace and help in our time of need. We have access to the king of kings in his throne room. With all of his power, all of his might, his crown, his scepter, his rod of iron with which he will subdue the nations. He will hear the prayers of his children as they come to him as father. Just imagine the privilege we have. Now we will seek counsel and help from from our earthly fathers. How much more should we be seeking our heavenly father with his power and his wisdom at his very throne room? Wives, this is a reminder not to complain about your husband, to nag, to be bitter, but yet to take it to your heavenly father in prayer. Have access to God. This is a reminder for husbands. Not to complain about their wives, not to complain about the politicians or, or their boss or the lack of finance, whatever it might, might be. But you have access to a heavenly Father. You can waltz into that throne room in prayer and you can plead for your father's mercy and grace in your life that he has promised to bestow upon on all those who are in need because of Christ. Those who are bitter, who are depressed, who are hopeless, who are scared, who are confused... Don't you see the privilege of being able to take that to your father in prayer? Your father is the king of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, when you pray, say father, have that in your mind. What a privilege to pray. What a motivation to come before God and pray. We're coming to the king of everything in our prayers. So bring your troubles, bring your requests to our heavenly father. Secondly, When we come to the throne of grace. Earthly concerns are viewed in light of heavenly realities. When we come to God as father. We are reminded. That we are a child of the king of kings and lord of lords. We are reminded that God is our father and he is our heavenly father. And he is making all things new. And this helps us. To cope and to deal with all the, the stresses and all the trials of our earthly life which are filled with misery and toil and trouble. And it's like going into that throne room and standing right by the king and looking back through those big doors and looking out onto the kingdom and seeing all of the the ills and the troubles of life. To recognize, well that's that's temporary. That my home is here with the king. That he is making all things new. And we come to God as our father. We recognize that we have a new perspective on our life here on earth. That suddenly we're not so caught up in all the material things. And, and if in our prayers, our prayers are consumed with matters of our health, of our wealth, and of our success, our prosperity. You know, even conservative Christians can be believing prosperity gospel and have a prosperity theology. Just listen to your prayers. Come to a prayer meeting. How, how are we doing in, in praying for, for our worldly cares and concerns without realizing we are, father of the, we, are, we are children of the heavenly king and he is our father. And suddenly all these earthly things get their proper perspective and weight. And we recognize we're just preparing ourselves for an eternal weight of glory We live in a time where we want prosperity now, justice now, fulfillment now, peace now, healing now. But we have our father now and he is working and he will save and he will judge. He will restore. And so we can be brought to a place of comfort and peace. And so Jesus says, when you pray, say father, that's the first. Second, let's look at hallowed be your name. Same thing, I want to describe what that means and then think about what that practically looks like when we come before God in prayer. Okay, hallowed be your name. What does that mean? I'm guessing hallowed is not a name that is in your regular vocabulary. To, what this word means or or hallowed be God's name means that God's name would be revered It would be honored. It would be worshiped. It would be adored, glorified, set apart, made holy, made other. That there would be a weight to God's name. Not like our current society where where God's name, more often than not in our city, would be used as a curse word. But we want God's name to be honored, hallowed, such that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee would bow. And every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory and honor of the Father. That's what we want. That's what Jesus is saying, praying for. Pray that God's name would be hallowed. We also have to realize, not only are we fighting an uphill battle in our culture today with God's name being profaned and not hallowed, but even within the church. I enjoy listening to preaching. And sometimes I... Put on some sermons, churches in the, in the area uh, who, who aren't in our same theological spectrum. But I'm just curious at, at what is being taught and what people are listening to and, and what is contemporary about the, the modern preaching evangelical scene. And there are some, I know some might think this is nitpicky, but there are some when the preacher comes up on, onto the stage. There's, there's no pulpit or anything, just like a music stand or a little table off to the side. And he comes up with a graphic tee and shorts and sandals. And, hey, how y'all doing? And all that kind of stuff. And I just, when I see that, I'm like, is, is God's name being honored here? And, and I, know, I know why they're doing it. They're doing it because they want to be personal. They want to be relatable. They want to be casual to make people feel at ease and comfortable. They don't want to be authoritative. They don't want to be preachy. But are we honoring God's name? Are we approaching the worship of God and are we handling the word of God and and forth telling the word of God in a manner that's appropriate with the honor, the glory, and the reverence, and the power that's associated with the name of God and of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Just think about Leviticus 10. There we have Nadab and Abihu. Aaron's sons, okay? They know what they're doing. Sons of the priest, and they go to the temple to offer, or the tabernacle, to offer what is called strange fire, unauthorized fire. They were bringing incense and a way to worship God that was not in the manner to which God prescribed. But yet we would assume that they're still desiring to, to worship God, but just in their own way. Maybe this is a, another way that they thought would be pleasing to the Lord. And the heavens opened up and God sent a bolt of fire from heaven and consumed them and they died. And it says there in Leviticus 10, God speaks and says, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. In other words, God says, my name will be hallowed. I will be honored. I will be revered. You do not worship me lightly. You do not come into my presence with your own ways of worship, lest you be consumed. We might say, well, why aren't preachers struck down today who don't hallow the name of God? Well, I think the Spirit of God has just left them and Ichabod is written over their door. The glory of the Lord has departed and they don't even know it. We also see in 2 Samuel 6, the Ark of the Covenant being moved to Jerusalem. And God was particular in how the Ark ought to be carried. But of course, men... As always, not just men, males, but humanity. As always, we are ingenious, creative, inventors, pragmatic. So why carry this ark all this way? Jerusalem is a big hill, by uh, uh, by the way. So let's, let's put it on an oxen cart and we'll just take it that way. And of course, as they're going... One of the oxen stumbles and the ark is about to fall. And then we have Uzzah reach out his hand to stabilize the ark so it doesn't fall onto the ground. And what does God do? Well, he strikes down Uzzah right then and he's dead. David was angry when that happened, angry with the Lord. And you might read that in 2 Samuel 6 and feel pity for poor Uzzah. Come on. He was trying to do a good thing, he was trying to keep the ark from falling onto the ground. Why would God strike him down? And I like R.C. Sproul's response in his book, The Holiness of God. He says the problem with us and with us is that we think his hands are cleaner than the ground. But here's a man of sin touching that ark when God says, don't touch it. The fault was the fact that they didn't carry it properly. And so God is particular about how he is worshipped and his name is holy. It is hallowed. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is just as concerned today about his holiness and about his worship as he was in Leviticus 10 and in Second Samuel 6. He is the unchanging God. And his name and his honor and his glory, God still esteems and he still expects his people to revere. And so there should be a, a trepidation, a fear, And awe at God's power. And his justice. And the perfection of his standards. And so when Jesus says. When you pray say father. Don't allow. The enormity. And the blessedness of that. Begin to minimize. The holiness. And the honor. And the reverence of God's name. When both go together. Then we see. The beauty of. Of what the Lord Jesus Christ intends here. That God the almighty infinite one is our father. And he ought to be honored and hallowed and revered. So how does this teach us to pray today? A few things I want to share from you. Number one. When we pray for God's name to be hallowed. We ought to want God to be honored in our lives. We ought to say father hallowed be your name. In my life, may I honor you. May I revere you as holy. May I tremble when I consider your awesomeness. May the fear of you be upon me, which would crowd any fear of man. May you be hallowed in my life. Listen to First Peter 3, 13 to 15. It says, now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. This passage is speaking about those who are suffering for doing what is good and how ought you to suffer When you are persecuted for righteousness sake. And Peter here instructs us by the spirit. To honor Christ the Lord as holy. To hallow his name. In your heart. That that is the root that is then going to bear the fruit. Of endurance. Of patience. Of comfort. Of joy. And of hope. And so much so that as you honor Christ the Lord in your heart that you will have those even who are your persecutors wondering what is that hope in you and it's because God is hallowed in my heart because Christ is honored in my life and so I consider my comfort and my ease of a little account in compared with the honor and glory of God that I want to see in my life and so I'm not afraid of suffering or persecution. But I have hope even in that. Because I serve the true and living God. And so when we honor God in our lives. It manifests, manifests itself in a variety of ways. This fear of God will cast away fear of men. Where God is revered or honored. Then hope will follow. And I, and I know we want this in our, in our lives. And so Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Help me to revere you the way that you ought, such that I fear you above all. That's the first thing. Secondly, when Jesus says, hallowed be your name, not only do you want God honored in our lives, we want God to be honored in the world. When we say, Father, hallowed be your name, we want every tongue to bow, every knee to confess. We want everyone to recognize the honor and glory of God. We don't want his name to be profaned among the nations. We don't want his name to be a curse word. We don't want his Bible to be laughed at and mocked. Listen to what it says in Ezekiel 36. Starting in verse 16. Ezekiel writes, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that the people said of them, these are the people of the Lord and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. God is concerned about the holiness of his name. It is right and proper for us to pray, Father, hallowed be your name. God, vindicate the holiness of your name. God, your name is being profaned among the nations. And not just as a curse word, your name is being profaned because of those who profess your name. And so God, vindicate the holiness of your name. Rise up and act, O Lord, not for our sake, but for your sake. For the greatness of your name, rise up and act. And as we pray for that, we know that God will, will answer that request in, in two different ways. And God can show up just like for Israel and provide for them salvation and redeem them in such a powerful way, just like he did with them in in Egypt. When he got glory over Pharaoh, so all the nations would know that he is the Lord through a great salvation. Oh, and God could pour out his spirit upon our nation and he could cause such a revival of faith in him to show and vindicate the glory of his name. Or he can also vindicate the holiness of his name by pouring out his wrath and his judgment upon our nation. He could rightly hold this nation to account, this people to account. And he can judge with such intensity, with such burning anger, with such fury and such vengeance that his people will stand back and say, holy is the name of God. He has vindicated his name. And so God will vindicate through salvation and he will vindicate his name through judgment. But one thing is sure, God will vindicate the honor of his name. And Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. We want God to be honored in the world. And number three, we want God to do this. When we say, Father, hallowed be your name. That command, that imperative, hallowed be your name is is a passive. There's no... There's no subject there. And so this is not a call for anybody to do this. This is a call for God to get glory for himself, to act in such a way that his name is honored and his name is revered. And that's why we're coming to him in prayer. God, you must act. You must answer. Father, hallowed be your name. Honor your name. Vindicate the holiness Of your name. And so Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. And number three, your kingdom come. Again, I want to describe what this is, what Jesus means here, and then how this helps us to pray. So, what does Jesus mean by your kingdom come? Obviously, this is God's kingdom. And very simply and most basically, the kingdom of God is his rule and his reign. More particularly, it is God's rule and his reign that he exercises perfectly in heaven where his will is perfectly done and where that is brought then to earth. It's very similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 6. We have a a longer version of the Lord's prayer there. And it says there, pray, your kingdom come Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those two phrases are synonymous. They're parallels. They help us to understand what Jesus means when he says, your kingdom come. When Jesus says, pray, your kingdom come. He wants God's will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. God, your rule and your reign, your throne, may you bring your power and bring it to bear here on earth. And we see that in Jesus' life. When Jesus did mighty miracles, when he cast out demons and healed the sick, taught with authority and even raised the dead, he said, the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is in your midst because the will of God is being performed. God's will in heaven, his perfection in heaven. There's no sin and death in heaven. There's no illness. There's no suffering. And so as Jesus Christ Christ, accomplishes these miracles, he is demonstrating and showing a preview of the kingdom in its fullness, but it's tangible there in Jesus' life as a manifestation of God's kingdom. His will is being done. His salvation is being brought to bear. His judgment is being brought to bear. And so there we see where the will of God is being done. We see the kingdom of God. No matter how imperfect, no matter how obscure, Where God's name is hallowed and his will is followed, there we have a representation of the kingdom of God. Some equate the kingdom of God just with the church. Some equate the kingdom of God with with strictly a future reign of Christ. There's aspects where both of those are true. But when Jesus calls us to pray, your kingdom come. Come. He also follows it up in Matthew 6 with seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. In other words, a priority of our prayers and a priority of our efforts, our labors, and what we ought to seek of first importance, seek first, is the kingdom of God. Not to batten down the hatches and wait for a coming kingdom, but pray for his kingdom to come right now. Pray for it to be manifest in our life, for God's will to be done, for his righteousness to be done in the here and now. And the kingdom of God is not just present within his church as he is worshiped and as will is obeyed together as a community. But the kingdom of God is there in a home where that home honors the name of the Lord, where his name is hallowed, where his will is followed. And I know there's no perfect home. But where God's name is hallowed and his will is followed, there we see a presence, a manifest presence of the kingdom of God. In a business place where God's name is hallowed and his will is followed, there we see the kingdom of God. Anywhere in this world where the triune God, where his name is hallowed and revered and honored and his will is followed, whether that's a city, a county, a country, a workplace, a home, a church. There is a representation, a manifestation of the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, when you pray, say, your kingdom come. Your will be done here. Oh God, descend upon us and upon our home, upon our country, upon our church. May your kingdom come. May your rule and reign be present and manifest here. That's what we're asking for. And to be clear, this doesn't come about by human might. When I speak about a present aspect of the kingdom that's always misconstrued as, oh, here here we go. They believe they ought to grab the reins of political power and subjugate people under Christ and, and coerce them to believe something they don't believe. Nonsense. The kingdom comes through the power of the gospel, the preaching of the word of God. And where Christ's name is hallowed, and honored and his will obeyed there we see the kingdom there we see true joy and to be certain this will not be fully realized until Christ's return there is the kingdom in its perfection and its future aspect will not be here until Jesus Christ comes but in third in 1 John 3 John says that when we see Jesus Christ, when he returns, we'll be perfect because we're going to see him as he is. And so does that mean now you don't care about holiness because you will be perfectly holy one day? Of course not. In fact, John says there, everyone who has this hope of being made perfect in Christ purifies himself now, even as he is pure. It is our labor now to be more sanctified, even though we know our full salvation is coming at the return of Christ. The same is true for his kingdom. We know his his kingdom will come in its full glory and its full power at the return of Christ. And yet we're still called as stewards to see God's kingdom, to seek it, and his righteousness in our homes, in our churches, and in the world today through the proclamation of the gospel, through the proclamation of Christ and his word. We're asking in this prayer request for heaven to come down to earth, for his will to be done here, to taste a bit of heaven in this life by God to send upon us. That's what we're asking for. Now, what does this mean for our prayers? Two things. When we say your kingdom come, we're saying your kingdom come in my life In my home, in my vocation, in my church. We're thinking of all those aspects of our life that we dwell in and we want the authority of God and his rule to apply and to have weight and bearing in every aspect of my life. We've been too influenced today by a a pietistic form of Christianity, an inner spiritual kind of Christianity that has little bearing upon the world. That's a safe, comfortable, intellectual ascent that we can keep private in our hearts. But Jesus says, when you pray, say your kingdom come. Not just on the throne of your heart, but your kingdom come here on this earth. And you rule and you reign just as you are in heaven. Your perfect will be done here. In all aspects of life. That's what we're asking for. And don't you want that? Don't we want the beauty of God's kingdom here? Even if we know its fullness won't come until the return of Christ. Don't we want that here? To taste and see the Lord is good. To have his spirit descend upon us to have a home that honors Christ, a church that honors Christ. And so if we desire that, will we not pray for that? Will we be motivated to say, your kingdom come in my life, in all aspects of it. God, have your way here. And then secondly, we not only want his kingdom to come in our life, in all our spheres of living, but we want his kingdom to come into our city. His kingdom to come into our city. And what I mean by that is, not only do we want those among us who are Christians to experience the greatness of God's kingdom, we want those who are unbelievers to be brought into the kingdom of God. To have the kingdom descend here. And this request, your kingdom come, is not only a request for God's will to be honored and followed and obeyed in our lives, but it's a request that the gospel might go forth with power. It's, a, it's an evangelistic request. It is in keeping with the great commission. Oh God, may your kingdom come. May you save souls. May the gospel go out. May the good news of Christ's death and his resurrection in the place of sinners. So that they can be reconciled to you. May that go forth and may many believe and be brought into your kingdom. And when we say your kingdom come we're not just asking that the Lord would bring some into his kingdom but we're asking for him to bring his kingdom to earth. And there's a world of difference there. We don't want to regard the kingdom of God as simply a a spiritual or heavenly reality that one day we'll be caught up to enjoy. So that the salvation message is believe upon Jesus. And so one day you can be caught up to glory. So one day you can enter into his kingdom. But Jesus is saying here he wants, rather than us being caught up into his kingdom is that his kingdom would come down here to earth that people will be saved and that people would obey in every aspect of their life the will and the righteous rule of God. And so he says, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Now as we come to the end of verse two, we'll pick it up in verse three next week. But this is what I want you to do this week. These things will not happen. We We can go on and on about The reverence that God's name is due. The beauties of his kingdom. Look at its history and how it has grown and and how God has judged rebellious and unbelieving people. And we could talk much about it, but yet if we don't take these truths and go before the Lord in prayer, then we're not doers, we're just hearers only. And so what I want you to do this week is find a time, if you don't already, find a time, find a place, and commit yourself to pray each day this week, following the instructions of our Lord. To put yourself in that space space of mind where you're coming to God as Father. And all of that means... And as you're praying that God's name would be hallowed and honored and his holiness vindicated in your life and in this world. And pray that his kingdom would come and be manifest in your life and all your spheres of of life and manifest in our city. And pray for his kingdom to come. And be earnest in prayer and tarry in prayer and commit yourself to that time and to that place. If you don't have a time, you won't do it. If you don't have a place, oh, it's time, where do I go? I don't have no, no place to do it. Get a time, get a place, and come before the Lord. We cannot expect the Lord to hear these pleas and for his kingdom to visit us if we are not earnest in prayer. Jesus says this is not just this optional. But when you pray, say this. These are the priorities that we ought to be praying for. We'll get to next week the things that we ought to pray for for ourselves. But let this week be consumed with the fatherhood of God, with the honor and glory of his name, and with the advance of his kingdom. Let's be earnest in prayer to that end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I pray now that as we have considered this instruction from our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would obey, that we would listen to our wonderful savior, Oh God, we thank you, we have access to you even to come into your throne room because of the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, if there is anyone here who is not one of your children, who has not taken up their cross and followed after you, oh God, I pray that today would be the day that you would be merciful to them, that they would confess their sin, commit their lives to follow you, that your spirit would bring them into your family, that you would adopt them as one of your children. Oh, do this for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.